Welcome, and thank you for listening to the Bartender Atlas Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Lindley, and on this episode, I talk with my good friend, Chantel Gabino. But first, if somehow you found this podcast and you've never heard of Bartender Atlas, that's cool. Bartender Atlas is a worldwide directory of bartenders, so if you're traveling to any of the seven continents, even Antarctica, we have you covered for drinks. If you're a bartender, head over to bartenderatlas.com and click on join, answer those questions, and we'll get you on the site, start sending you travelers and boomerangs as soon as we can. Bartender Atlas, that's me and my wife, Jessica Blaine-Smith, we're half of the team that organizes Toronto Cocktail Conference. This year, talk happens from August 10th to August 12th. We're accepting applications for seminars, for sponsorships, for Trash Pandas. Trash Pandas is our cute name for our volunteer team. Uh, We're accepting all those until March 1st. If you want to get involved, go to torontococktailconference.com. Now, on this episode of the Bartender Atlas podcast, I chat with Chantel Gabino. You might recognize her name from any of the global cocktail competitions that she's been a part of. Here, though, we talk about how Shanti went from singing in a family band in Vancouver to living with her breakdancing cousin in Toronto and then becoming a brand ambassador for Empress Gin and Bittered Sling Bitters. She also does some work with the Dandelion Initiative, which is an organization that helps survivors of domestic and sexual violence. So please take some time and listen to Chantel Gabino on the Bartender Atlas podcast. So first of all, Chantel, thanks for taking time to come and hang out in this quiet room on the far east side of Toronto. Um, The way that I've been starting all of these off, where did you grow up? Oh, wow. I'm an all-Canadian gal. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Yeah. I love coming to this part of Toronto. (laughs) I'm never here. It's always like glittering glam, like what's going on in the East End. Well, I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Lived there until I was about five. My mother was smart and got us out of that part of uh, Canada, and uh, I'm very thankful, but I grew up in the west coast of BC, Vancouver, and uh, Vancouver was just one of those places where, like, I, growing up, never realized the privilege I have, I had having access to mountains and oceans and fresh air and, like, a moderate climate, Um and now that I live in Toronto, and I've been living here since I was 17, because I ran away from home at 17 and moved to Toronto, because uh, I fell in love with this city when I was visiting my uncle here when I was 15 years old. And I was like, you know, when you come from like a small little suburban area, you're always dreaming, at least for myself, dreaming of the big city and like leaving your small little town and like trying to make a name for yourself. And if I always imagined if you could make it in Toronto, which is like Canada's little mini New York, if you will, I felt like you were already like a couple steps ahead of the West Coast. So we'll get back to your Toronto and, and your, your adventures <laughs> getting here. Yeah. You just, uh, yeah, fast forwarded. To, that's the whole podcast. We're done now. Done. Uh, yeah. That's it. You yeah, made it in it. Toronto. So you're great. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really great to look at. Canada as a whole and understand like you know each province has something very specific to offer in terms of experience and climate and you know vegetation and community Mm -hmm. but uh, I find that even though I've visited Winnipeg and visited I go back home to Vancouver at least once or twice a year Mm -hmm. Toronto's home yeah yeah so let's go back to when you were growing up and you so for the most part uh, from age, what, four or five until 16 or 17, you were in Vancouver. Yeah. Were you right in Vancouver? Yeah, so um, my mother was very brave. She, like, found a place in Vancouver, like in West Van, mm-hmm. right away. 
she and myself and one of her close friends, who I consider an aunt, the three of us moved to Vancouver, and uh, we were living, like, right in the thick of it. And I probably lived in and around, like, West Van, um, like, right in, uh, right in the thick of East Van, near Burnaby. Uh, I grew up, like, in Richmond. Uh, majority of my high school years were spent in the Guilford or Surrey area. So, like, we lived everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was from a family that, you know, we were immigrants. My grandparents, um, I taught them how to speak English, essentially. Uh, and, you know, as a marginalized group, we essentially, I was exposed to a lot of realness from a really young age. We moved around a lot. Like, every single year, probably, I had been to 11 different schools before uh, I had even graduated from high school. What sort of schools were you going to? City schools. Just like public schools? Public, Whatever was yeah. closest to your house? Yeah, basically. Sometimes it would require a commute. Um, it was definitely, you know, Vancouver is fairly multicultural. I would say that Toronto is more. I would say that Vancouver and the suburbs that I had lived in were very segregated mm-hmm. uh, for, in many different ways. But I went to public schools. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like school? Yeah. Yeah. I liked even, sports. Even, even if you were moving around a bunch. Yeah. So I, the interesting thing is, is I think that that moving around a lot kind of like set me up for this hospitality career. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to be able to like read people efficiently. Um, but it also taught me to be extremely social and like learn how to try and fit in. I mean, when I was growing up, I was a tomboy for mm-hmm. a good chunk of my life. So I found safety in sports and like any sort of physical activity. What sports were you playing? Basketball, volleyball, track. How tall are you? I am 5'4", just barely. Uh-huh. But I had jumps <laughs> when yeah. I was a kid. I was like your typical left-handed uh, offside setter as a power, as a volleyball player, and I was your point guard. Right. I played uh, senior ball when I was a junior in high school from like a short period of time when I was at a high school yeah. uh, in Surrey, but before moving somewhere else, but... Um, I think, like, my family in general has always been very competitive and athletic. Mm-hmm. Um, also, being typically Filipino, like, they love the showmanship. Like, it's, you know, my uncle was probably one of, like, he was part of the craziest b-boy crew back in the day that would travel internationally mm-hmm. and were known, like, globally as uh, this group from Canada mm-hmm. called Contents Under Pressure. You could see them, like, breakdancing in chaos and, like, the Rascals old school videos. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my mother used to breakdance in pop and lock when she was a kid. Um, several family members either play instruments or, like, sang for professionally. Um, so there's, like, that whole aspect of uh, putting on a show and a performance for so, my family. That's amazing. So it sounds like even despite, uh, you know, moving around a bunch yeah. and, uh, and as you mentioned, you and your mom and, and an aunt of sorts yep. kind of taking off and moving around a whole lot, your family seems like they were always really involved and supportive of whatever it is you and your mom were doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that she particularly needed to get away from Winnipeg mm-hmm. and, like, her, her own, like, little drama, whatever it was at that time. You know, she raised me as a single mother. Um, my biological father was not a reliable person, so she just, like, you know, was, like, you know, pure independent woman. I think that she's one of the strongest people I know. 
even to date, you know, as a 31-year-old woman. But watching her go through that adversity and through that struggle as a kid, raising me as a single mom, like, really set the tone for, like, what sort of reality I was exposed to at a really, really young age. Mm-hmm. So coming to Vancouver was, like, this fresh start for her. And it kind of felt like, I remember it specifically, it felt like a fresh start for me as well. But it was interesting to watch the rest of my immediate family on her side uh, follow right after support. So, like, a lot of the times when we moved had to do with another family members moving from Winnipeg and coming to join us. So we need to get a bigger house so that all of us can live right. together. Or, uh, you know, my grandfather and the other uncle are coming down, and so we're all just going to live together. So we get a house, like, near Trout Lake in Vancouver that's right across the street that's, like, willow trees and, like, mountains mm-hmm. and lakes, blah, blah, blah. So it's a really it was pretty part of the city. <laughs> really is, yeah. yeah. And I went to a school in that area twice. I had, like, elementary school had gone, lived in that area, moved, went to another school for two years, and then moved back and went back to the same elementary school I was at before. So I saw, like, a one- or two-year break between friends I had before and, like, watching them be two years older later because I went back to the same school. Were you in Vancouver when you started in the service industry? Like, were you working in restaurants, or that didn't happen until you took off to Toronto? So, like, when we're thinking of a traditional sense of customer service or hospitality, uh, like hospitality specifically, started in Toronto. Um, I had been working in sales Mm -hmm. uh, as a first job when I was a kid. I used to do door-to-door salesmen uh, for the Vancouver Sun and Province as Uh a... 13-year-old kid knocking on doors. Like, I don't even know how we thought back then that it was safe for, like, 13-year-olds to go around and knock on uh, people's doors selling newspaper subscriptions, but that was my job. Yeah. Uh, We made commission only, but, like, there were weeks where I would leave with, like, Three to five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars as a thirteen-year-old. As a thirteen-year-old, depending on how well you could sell, and then other times it would be zero because, yeah. like you know, maybe you just weren't in that neighborhood that was you know wanting to buy newspapers that day. But or like, like neighbors wanting to show up their neighbors and well, if you're if you're getting the subscription, then I should. Yeah, I mean, it was strange, and it would be like six six teenagers or kids being driven around by this dude and being dropped off in neighborhoods to go sell newspaper subscriptions. He's obviously making money off of us. Yeah. Typical, like, little pyramid scheme, if you will. Right. And, uh, yeah, that was, like, me learning a hard reality of how to deal with people that are complete strangers Mm -hmm. from a a young age. Yeah. Then from that, it, you know, developed into, actually, I totally forgot McDonald's. I went Uh to McDonald's (laughs) for a little bit. I worked at McDonald's right before I moved to Toronto. Mm-hmm. I had, like, been working there, like, a day or two a week, sometimes more, depending on the time of year. But, like, that job maybe only lasted six to eight months. Right. But I was I was a fryer girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then when you moved to Toronto, mm-hmm. did you start in restaurants right away? No. So I'm very fortunate. Um, my mother's younger brother, the middle child, my Uncle Jazar, who was in the breakdancing group. He's always been, like, this guy that I've idolized as a kid. Never had a really strong father figure, but had him to, like, you know, really be this beacon of light for what could be when I get older. I feel like it's important to have a cool uncle, right? For sure. And, like, he exposed me to all the best music as a kid. So, like, when he was breakdancing, he'd be watching me when he was having, like, 
breakdance competition training or like teaching folks how to how to breakdance and having like sessions and practice sessions, I'd get to go and just like witness some of the best music as a kid. As like a 16, 17 year old. No, I'm talking about like eight, 10 year old. Oh, OK. And like going to some of these sh- like battles as a kid mm-hmm. sitting around the circle, like I'm talking about like 10, 11 years old watching these guys. Like, right. So this is like down. this is like early 2000s. Like no, this like is like late '90s. This is like mid late '90s. Okay. Yeah, like I, uh, yeah, he he had a couple studios, but it was interesting enough. Like when he moved here, um, I was devastated as a kid. Mm-hmm. He let me come and visit one time when I was 15 to Toronto, and from that point on, I was like in love with Toronto. I was like, this is the best place. Also, it has the most amazing food, and it's all condensed in one area, and I just want to eat it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um. And some shit hit the fan when I was in Vancouver, coming from a family that, you know, was just really uh, dealing with family woes and the dynamics of going through um, my mother going through being remarried Mm -hmm. and having a stepdad Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, being the firstborn. Uh, I had moved to Toronto and had him as a crutch. So, like, even though I ran away from home because the situation was really toxic in Vancouver, I had him to kind of show me the way to be a little bit of a crutch to be like, okay, so you're in Toronto now. I had to take you out of that situation. Shit was unsafe. This is what it's going to be like for you as a 17-year-old to make rent. Mm -hmm. So he gave me a safe space to learn how to work a job uh, and then, like, pay partial rent and then live with him and his girlfriend at the time and uh, really just start to work my way up to like being that 18 year old that's fully sustaining themselves. But he did it in a really strategic way, which was allow me to go to school until noon. Yeah. And I went to Central Tech, Bathurst and uh, Harvard (laughs) that I went there for uh, two semesters. And the other uh, would be leave at noon and come and work in my shops. Mm -hmm. So he had a couple retail shops. It was Goodfoot, Nomad, and Ransom. Yeah. Uh, very iconic men's fashion wear, sneaker shops, and, like, I mean, I'm wearing infrareds right uh-huh. now. Like, the sneaker, <laughs> fe- like, never dies. Um, <laughs> still still have sneakers to this day that are, like, insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was just, you know, working the customer service side of things, like, being helpful, being hospitable. Um, I was exposed, thankfully, to, like, celebrities at a really young age that mm-hmm. I just had to learn how to keep my cool and like I mean I we've worked in the hospitality industry like we can have stories about the craziest celebrities that we've ever served and met and mm-hmm. like that interestingly enough set the tone for me to like be able to work with high profile um clients when did you make the switch from retail to when service? I yeah it's interesting I feel like it's the same story you know when I got into university. Yeah. It's one of those things where you have to stop retail and find a more lucrative way of making money in a short period of time. What did you go to university for? I went for new media Mm -hmm. at Ryerson. Uh, Same department as photography and film, but it was like the new media program right now, I think it's called Media X or something. It's essentially a new art form of being able to understand new technology Mm -hmm. and use it in a functional but artistic manner. Uh, But it's a lot of art theory. It's university, you know, like it's tons of art history and art theory. And then surprisingly enough, I I took five years to finish that program. It's a four-year program, but, you know, I did it on my own and without any crutch financially. So like taking an extra year, totally doable and like do it your own way. Um, But in that last year, it was so interesting. That's, I think that's when it clicked for me 
that the industry was something that could essentially be a career for myself. It was from throwing our year-end event and fundraising for it. And instead of creating a thesis project, which you can do at the end of your um, year, your program, Mm -hmm. I decided to be a part of the committee that essentially threw the whole thing. Yeah. The whole year-end show. And then that's... I was working at Parts and Labor at the time, bartending. Mm -hmm. Um, Rest in peace, Parts and Labor. Um, And it really just started to show me the avenues of career uh, opportunities that could be made within the industry. Yeah. So I'm going to take a second because you've brought up Parts and Labor. Yeah. Uh, And you started there as a bartender. I did. For anyone listening that isn't from Toronto or is maybe new and doesn't realize the impact that Parts and Labor had when it first opened, it was, you know, three guys, if I'm not mistaken, essentially, three guys who decided to open a restaurant that was fancy but not too fancy, like thoughtful food, but also a party. And in the basement was a venue that for the first few years had a rule of no electronic music. Uh, at a time when clubs were just killing it in Toronto and everyone was a DJ and they decided to only have live music. And that's the that's the bar that you sort of came up in. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> jumping to that, that's like nine, eight years ago, nine, nine years ago. Yeah, now. it was 2010 it opened. Yeah. Right? And I yeah. so I was a part of the second hiring process. Like some of the people that worked there are still dear friends to this day. Um but yeah, parts and labor is pretty much where I had sunk in my roots into this industry. I had I had worked at other places like Mildred's Temple Kitchen with Charlie Lament back mm-hmm. in the day. That's how like the, my first experience of meeting Charlie without actually knowing the full depth of like who Charlie was as an entity in this industry. Yeah, and like also you know working at uh, my first restaurant job in Toronto was Java House, yeah, Queen and Augusta. Classic. I worked there for three and a half years. That yeah. place helped put me through university. I'm going to tell you right now, like, people can say whatever they want about Java House and that whole entity of working for those hospitality people. But I will say those women that work there, those folks that work there, they ensured always that education was our priority. Mm-hmm. If we were in school and worked for them and we had, you know, a test or projects, no questions asked. They'd like send you home and send you on your way to go study because that yeah. was the most important. So when, so you worked at Parts and Labor for how long? Five years? No, I worked there for seven years. Seven years. Yeah. And so between lessons that your uncle taught you when you first moved to Toronto about yeah. how to sustain yourself and then the women you just mentioned at Java House mm-hmm. who were making sure that you were looking after yourself while you were still working there. Yeah. How much of that as you worked through Parts and Labor, I mean, we can we can skip through all the 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 rough parts of it, but event. Yeah. But by the by the time you had finished working at Parts and Labor, you were the GM, and yeah. so how much of what your uncle taught you and these ladies from Java House taught you figured into your management style? And when you were scheduling staff or working with staff or who you worked with there, how much did that inform what you were doing as a GM? It's really interesting, you know. Like your management style is always dictated by the people that are working with you. You know, every single person is entirely different from the next, so how you deal with them should be, how you talk to them, how you deal with them should be inherently, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like flexible? It should be flexible to where they're at currently in their space. And like when I first started off at Parts and Labor, I was uh, a bartender, and then, you know, I stepped into like a bar manager-ish role 
took over and became an interim GM whilst they found someone else. And like, I had so many other people that were really amazing managers before me kind of watching their style and had never really fully managed a full group of professionals before. So it was a learning curve for me. I'd say like, you know, I made a lot of mistakes as a young manager, but Mm -hmm. that's how you learn. And I'm thankful that these guys kind of gave me the space and my team gave me the space to like go through that learning curve. The manager I am now is so different from before because I think the people that I've been involved with outside of the restaurant industry really helped to shape my perception on how to deal with people in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Every group of people, depending on, you know, the type of status that, uh, the hierarchy and structure are built within is so different from the next. And I'm thankful that parts and labor genuinely felt like a family. Yeah. Like it's not something that you can always say, like, of course, every space has, you know, their qualms, but like everybody was genuinely there to support each other. And while, you know, they're going through learning curves on their own, it's, it became a safe space for me. And it, it was a safe space because I knew and I trusted the managers that had, um, built this really awesome community of people to work with each other. And we, I was still learning. I think that, like, you know, a good chunk of my time with Parts was still learning what uh, this industry could be and what it was growing and becoming. And currently, you know, what I started competing in cocktail competitions like six years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, watching the changes and watching and even just talking to you about currently about my growth over this, that last period of seven years at parts is so interesting. Like I had people like Lauren Moat really showing me that there's this whole other facet to what we do behind a bar with something like speed rack. So there's a couple of things that you touched on there. I want to go back to, Yeah. you mentioned, uh, in there that, uh, taking influence, not just from the people that you're working with, but, uh, sort of outside of yeah. the industry specifically and understanding that, that, <clears throat> that, should have an effect on how you treat people within the industry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that, and then I felt like that led in the first really big global competition that I know that you were involved in, and I believe you won for Canada the first year you tried, was the most imaginative bartender, the Bombay competition. Yeah. And so anyone listening that maybe isn't familiar with how most imaginative bartender works, uh, I know in your case, when you were practicing for it, you specifically were reaching out to everyone you know saying, you know, pop by parts and labor on this day. I'll be there from three till seven or whatever. Yeah. Bring me weird stuff. Yeah. And I'll see how I can work with it. And so really adapting those outside influences. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years later, you were in Bacardi Legacy. Yeah. And you went very far in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, learning more along the way, what sort of things would you say you picked up from... You know, being GM, who definitely had eyes on the outside world as well, but then adapting that into these global competitions that you were then a part of. Yeah. Like, there's lessons that go back and forth between them, and how much did one influence the other? Oh, man. That was such a fun time for me. Um, You know, really flexing my fingers and creativity in a competition like most imaginative bartender was just like a dream come true for me. Like I had taken five years of being in university for a fine arts degree and got to figure out a way to like fuel that creativity into this newfound career of bartending that I was so obsessed with because I love food and drinks. And that time, I think, you know, when I was looking for inspiration for that, it always had to dial down into 
a story. I'm a sucker for a good story. I always say this. And it's true. Like, I, I genuinely can get lost in, like, the backstory of why something was created and, like, romanticize in my brain why that's important to me. And always for all of these cocktail competitions, it always had to do with me feeling extremely restless about the current times that we're living in and getting upset about and frustrated, really, that, like, I can't do anything about it. So, like... Because I'm obsessed with the story, it always had to deal with finding inspiration of wanting to tell the story of frustration of like wanting to like, you know, uh, create a narrative around something that I think is super important. And with Most Imaginative Bartender, it really dialed into this rooftop garden that we had created. And that parts actually originally had years before I had even touched it. So when I joined them, they already had a full time gardener on the rooftop that was essentially growing tons of stuff for the restaurant and after a couple of years we had to close down for legal reasons but um a year like four years later I invigorated it after doing this amazing trip to the botanist um and Brickladi in Scotland mm-hmm. and got super inspired by most imaginative bartender created this rooftop garden and then in a second version of it had actually started an apiary because it seemed like the most natural step and something I always wanted to do. So in the last few years of parts and labor, I had learned so much within my growth state there and found it necessary for me to create opportunities for me to learn more, but also find a way to also invigorate the community to come along on this journey with me. Mm-hmm. And that's why those days for most imaginative bartender, when it was like, come and bring me something weird. Hey, come by and like, check this out. Um, it was me essentially reaching out being like, Hey, uh, have you ever tried growing something for the restaurant or your bar? Uh, have you ever considered keeping bees or chickens or something crazy like Mm -hmm. that? Or what's the craziest thing you've done to like fresh ingredients to like preserve them or like work with them. And it then evolved into the apiary and the apiary was just like another, you, you were there with us. Mm -hmm. You, you had gone into those hives several times. Like, I'm still working currently on finding ways to be able to find a space to continue to run hives in a way that is educationally um, forward. And I think that's something that you've done very well, is that every time you are driven to learn something, you're always doing your best to sort of bring people with you and like use, use those opportunities as community building ideas. Something uh, you sort of touched on before when, uh, when you were talking about moving around a lot and Mm -hmm. being able to see growth through doing most imaginative bartender. You mentioned that uh, you went on a trip to Scotland. Uh, You've also done Bacardi legacy. Obviously Mm -hmm. you, you'd gone on a bunch of trips on behalf of them as well. Is it interesting for you to go back to other cities or even to come back to Toronto after time away and watch growth happen? I love what talking to you about this stuff because I think you and I, you know, both of us are very privileged to have like gone other places with other brands and gone other places because of our bartending career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm so thankful for that. It's it's such an eye opener. I think that traveling is so important. You know, for myself growing up, I had never gone anywhere on a plane until I came to Toronto to visit. Mm-hmm. Um, travel was not something that we were privileged to do because we, we just couldn't afford it. And so 
as an early 20-year-old, mid-20-year-old, that was something that was like high on my list. And when I realized that I could do that with my career, it was such an eye-opener. So I constantly wanted to create opportunities for me to be able to see the world through the brand's eyes and learn more about our industry and more about the products that we're serving on a regular basis. And uh, every single time I had gone to like somewhere like London or uh, even just like, you know, somewhere like Halifax, Nova Scotia, like where have you? Scotland. It was always one of those moments when I came back where I was like, wow, I don't know shit. Yeah. It was really fucking humbling. Sorry, I'm going to swear. Yeah, yeah. But it was super humbling because... It, it's a bartender podcast. Yeah. It's an adult content thing. Fair. <laughs> yeah. I, I realized that in traveling that we live in this tiny little bubble as tiny as, you know we think it is or as large as we think Toronto is it's very small it's mm-hmm. a very small community and you need to learn how to reach out as much as you possibly can and you and I know very well that like we our biggest thing is trying to find the next gen and like support them in in traveling I found that every single time I came back it really opened my eyes to just how little I know and how much harder I need to work at perfecting my craft and what's important to me And the more that I traveled, the more I saw that there were these little mini niche careers being made out of uh, people's bartendering careers. Mm -hmm. You know, like we can look at so many different influential people in the industry and recognize that they all have bartending as this one vehicle to help them get to where they are. But they have this side hustle or side passion that really helps to fuel everything else and their personal happiness, if you will. Yeah. But bartending is just like that really great network that you, I, I, I would say, as a PR company, would be fortunate to have access to those fo- those folks mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And so, okay, we've been covering where you've come from. Yeah. Let's talk about what you're doing now. So, winning a bunch of competitions, GM at a very successful bar slash restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about your gardening programs. You've done all this. And now, so far as I can tell, you have three full-time jobs. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's go with the the one that seems to be eating most of your time currently is the Empress Gin job. Mm, yeah. So how did you get involved with Empress Gin? So competing in Bacardi Legacy was really interesting. Um, I think it taught me a lot about what it, it means to market a brand specifically. I had worked with Bittered Sling on a... I've been working with them now for like four years. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to learn a lot from Lauren Moat and Jonathan uh, Shivanchek about like what it is to be a hospitality professional in this industry on a national global spectrum, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And with Legacy, it was more very PR brand specific. And I had already known, you know, a good chunk of this on how to do this for my education and from doing other jobs specifically. But it was really interesting to kind of go through that experience and then on the other side uh, have someone like Empress who is, it speaks numbers to me because it comes from a place where I grew up, you know, in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. It's very intrinsically a small company that is organically Canadian and uh, from like one of the most amazing, beautiful provinces in our uh, country. And working with them basically started because of uh, a really great mentor, Lauren Mote. Uh, props to Lauren. She knows how much I love Canadian products and how much I vouch for being Canadian, especially when we travel internationally. 
you know, for us as Canadians, it's very tough to often get time on stage uh, to be listed in the same capacity as the rest of the world because uh, we're such a new country. You know, we only, mm-hmm. we're only like 150 something years old of drinking culture. When you look at like some place like London, it's like yeah, centuries. <laughs> Right. of drinking and so like you know being able to be put in the same category as a market as something like the united states or even um australia if you will mm-hmm. uh doesn't happen very often so i always vouch for my canadian industry fam and what a better company to represent canadian drinking culture than uh victoria distillers and They've been doing some pretty amazing stuff over there, and in the recent three years, they released Empress Gin, and it's uh, not only absolutely delicious, reads like London Dry, like modernity, but their whole company and the people that work for them all stand for the same sort of... Um, Have the same sort of values that you values, do? Values, yeah, morals and ethics that yeah. I do as well. Yeah. And even just like the master sellers, the family, they all do nonprofit work that is super inspiring. And, you know, that's kind of where I'm at currently. I, as much as I love working for the industry, there's just always this little itch at the back of my back that's always reminding me that, you know, as much as we love creating these hospitable experiences in hospitality, there are larger issues that need to be dealt with on a large scale in order to make our industry better. And so working with Empress uh, allowed me to be able to work some of uh, these incentives that I've already been working on outside of the bartending community and support them. Mm-hmm. And Bittered Sling was great at that, as, at that as well, you know, like anything pertaining to working with the Dandelion Initiative, they've supported. Mm-hmm. Um, brands like Bacardi also supported my legacy journey for change and really... Um, help to sink a, a good chunk of sponsorship dollars into trying to spread that across Canada. And I'm so fortunate for that. Yeah. Um, and even so that we're going to continue to go back to these cities and do safer bars and spaces training with the Dandelion Initiative. And um, yeah, I mean, working with Empress still allows me to be able to do that as well. That's great. And then, and because it's a, it's a gin brand yeah. and it's based on the West Coast, uh, the non-compete thing, you're also a brand ambassador for Bittered Sling. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, Jonathan and Lauren been running this company Ugh. for 11 years? Just I don't like know, a while years. now. Yeah. Um, and so what was the first connection with Lauren and Jonathan? First connection with Jonathan, well, Lauren, first and foremost, uh, had to do with Speed Rack. Mm-hmm. So I... When I first met Lauren, I was so new to uh, trying to find community within Toronto scene. Uh, I'd been exposed to it in pockets through parts and labor, but never really fully saw the full girth of like how many people are involved in competing in cocktail competitions. I come from a family where a lot of family members were infected by breast cancer, and that was a cause that I could totally get down with. And I love healthy competition, you know me, and like, yeah. want to compete in everything. Even though I've never really made it that far in speed rack, it's always been so much fucking fun. Yeah, being a part of that and uh, standing with a bunch of women and, you know, working towards a cause. It was uh, that that I was like, oh, Lauren, you're 
really amazing person. You're knowledgeable, uh, confident, speaks for a good chunk of the West Coast, like even in general, Canadian female bartenders overall. I had never really seen a, a figure like that that was so influential other than someone like Sandy D. Almeida mm-hmm. uh, for the beverage scene. And I was just so encapsulated by her charm that I was like, I need to like get to know you. Mm-hmm. And uh, lo and behold, through training sessions with a manager, Martin McNenley, who she had worked with at La Palette back in the day. Okay. Uh, I had had Lauren <coughs> teaching me all about her bitters back in, what was it, 2010 or 2011 or mm-hmm. something like that at Parts. And that's, and the rest is history. You've been working with Bittersling uh, in some capacity since then. I am their national brand ambassador, mm-hmm. one of uh, a f- couple. Uh, there's mm-hmm. tons of us across the country. I'd say there's about two in every province. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been fortunate to do a good chunk of traveling with Bittersling and uh, do a lot of programming in and around. Uh, some causes that I believe in. They've been supportive in terms of trying to get safer bars and spaces training out um, in the West Coast. And also recently when we went to London for London Cocktail Week. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's important for me to understand and to work with people that are capable of being able to support the causes that I believe in. You know, as much as I would love to work for uh, and get to see the whole insides and outs of working for a corporate entity. I'm very fortunate that I get to work with a group of people that are capable of being able to support you at a micro level Mm -hmm. and really understand, you know, the frameworks of what goes on in your brain and what you believe in and work with you to support that because they too believe in your cause. Well, they come from a similar sort of standpoint, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then you've mentioned it a couple times, the Dandelion Initiative is something you've been working with for a while. Anyone listening that doesn't know what they are, give us the lowdown. What's the Dandelion Initiative and what does it do? Yeah, the Dandelion Initiative is a nonprofit organization that is founded by sexual assault survivors for sexual assault survivors. Uh, We're a grassroots organization that recently got funded by the federal government. for three quarters of a million dollars, which is really awesome. Yeah. Uh, that is to sustain us for, as an organization for the next five years. Uh, so we're in moving into year two soon. A lot of the programming that we do is to support survivors in our community, but we do have a facet of the organization that focuses uh, specifically on industry-specific tools, mm-hmm. tactics, and education that is meant to create safer bars and spaces. And the Safer Bars and Spaces training is three and a half hours long, um, but there are many other workshops that we offer as an organization from professionals that have been in and around this business uh, doing social work, education, what have you, even with children for over a decade. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate to be involved with them um, as their chair of the board of directors as their president, if you will. Uh, But prior to this, I mean, I just got voted in um, a few months ago. Uh, which was really exciting. I had been involved with them um, for a fundraiser that happened at Parts and Labor called BASH, mm-hmm. Bartenders Against Sexual Harassment. And for those of you that don't know, BASH was the aftermath of the College Street bar attack. Mm-hmm. And um, the Dandelion Initiative was actually very instrumental in ensuring that the College Street bar closed down and lost their license and uh, doesn't continue to... You know, it doesn't operate. Yeah. That's yeah. heavy stuff. But yeah. 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 So, you know, I think when we look at it overall, my life, my lived experiences really helped to shape 
where I currently am in this life. You know, I, I laugh. I have a little brother and sister. One's 16 and one's 18. Both are very, uh, like, filled with anxiety, trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to reassure them that, like, you know, whatever you're good at, just kind of focus on that and everything else will eventually fall into place it'll make sense to you but you need to be happy mm-hmm. currently like everything that I've gone through from growing up in Vancouver running away from home you know uh being in in the service industry hospitality etc prepped me for this time yeah. to be able to give me the means of being able to educate myself more and around this field that I'm super passionate about which is you know making bars and restaurants safer even for, going back to you know, when we first started talking, mentioning how your mom was the best role model you could have had. Yeah, I and mean, <laughs> yeah, she, uh, raising a, ch- a child as a, well, she, was, she had me when she was 20, 20-year-old 20 uh, single mother. Mm-hmm. When you have that as a role model of, like, facing adversity and perseverance and being super resilient no matter what was thrown at you, like, it's an inspiration but it's also, you know, a really hard slap of reality. You mm-hmm. have to break the cycle. Yeah. Generational poverty, if you will. Also, you know, generational trauma. So many things happen. And as a marginalized person, not only being a person of color, but also being a female, working in this industry uh, definitely wasn't easy at first. You mm-hmm. know, now I'm in a place where I see more people like me being represented in the media, Um on a global platform in our industry, mm-hmm. uh, even just in general in our communities, it's nice to see that we're starting to see the shift of the numbers of um, diversity and inclusivity evening each other out. Yeah. Yeah. It's sick. Um, it's something that you haven't brought up at all. Mm-hmm. You also sing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the performative thing, you know? Filipinos, we love putting on a show. I mean, I always joke and say that karaoke is our second language. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, my mother knew that I could sing from a very young age, and she exploited it very young, uh-huh. um, as most Filipino parents do. So was this was this just at, like, family functions and gatherings, no. or was it just, at, like, school plays or church groups or whatever? It was everything. So it was... Uh, she probably figured out I could sing it around like six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. At that time, my cousin, who also had lived in, lived in Vancouver, she was around my age. They figured out that she could sing, and her sis- older sisters could also sing and play piano. Please tell me you were in a family band. We were in a group. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we would dance. We would create choreography and dance and sing interchangeably. We were like a girl band, uh-huh. really young age. We had performed at the Plaza of Nations in front of 300 people. When I was, like, seven years old. And I think my grandmother still has the neon outfits and bell bottoms that were crafted for us by my aunts and uncles at the time. (laughs) And it was for, like, the Filipino festival. Um, What did we sing? I think we did, like, a Madonna track or something. I I can't remember what it was. But we would do, like, Mary J. Blige. We'd sing Spice Girls. We would, like... it It was girl power to the fullest. And, you know, that really taught me how to own a crowd. And I think I really am so thankful for this now because a lot of the cocktail competitions that we do are very much so performances. If you mm-hmm. look at Bacardi Legacy, uh, which is such an interesting cocktail competition, you know, it's exactly that. It's a performative six, seven minutes. Yeah. Putting on a show, telling a story, being animated, you know, encapsulating your viewer, making them go through emotion, 
it's uh, it's pretty magical. And then on top of it, you know, the aspect for me was I never so I'd done bartender boxing. I'd never wanted to do Bacardi Legacy. I had been I felt like I was at a stage in my life where I was like, I'm done with cocktail competitions. Mm -hmm. But then I watched Jian Chen's performance uh, a couple years ago, the guy that had won from um, New York, Mm -hmm. he's Taiwanese. And that performance made me tear up. I watched it at home by myself. Chris Bahamandes, yeah. love you, Chris, um, basically asked me to compete in Legacy after we finished bartender boxing. And I was like, nah, I don't have time. I had still four jobs, at, three jobs at the time. Mm-hmm. And he's like, please, I really want you to consider this. Watch this for me. Sent me Jian Chen's video. and uh, Or like he posted it or something. And that was it. I was like, I have to do this. And I was at a stage in my life where I had been so involved with the Dandelion Initiative. We had just received our grant. Mm-hmm. We were coming off of uh, International Women's Day, yeah. um, which is so important for us. You know, Bittered Sling has been doing a good chunk of the programming for the last three years across the country. We try to, like, do something in Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto all at the same time with the Bittered Sling crew. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just been coming in a... I had been in a point of helplessness knowing how much work Victoria the uh, executive director of the Dandelion Initiative and founder had been going through. And it was really disheartening because she is somebody that, you know, her heart, she gives her all Mm -hmm. into something. She will definitely support survivors and, like, give them the shirt off her back if she can. Mm -hmm. And we had reached a roadblock for funding. We were considering closing and folding the DI. It Mm -hmm. just was not sustainable for her. And I was watching her deteriorate, you know, really putting her heart into this. And for me, I was like, okay, what can I do to help her? For with my expertise and what I'm trying to do, what needs to be done here to like support her in this moment, even if it's a pat on the back, like you're doing great, or it's a, I'm going to create an entire campaign around this cocktail to support the Dandelion Initiative, mm-hmm. which is what CanBR was. Yeah. It was essentially a vehicle for me to try and instigate change in the industry while creating positive narratives of change in the bar. Yeah. And supporting the Dandelion Initiative in the process. Yeah. And a big part of that was your karaoke parties as well. Yeah. So you managed to take everything you've ever done in your life yep. and put it into literally your legacy. Yeah. Which I've never competed in it, but my understanding is that's exactly what the competition is. That's the point, yeah. Uh, all right, we've been talking for a while. If someone wants to find you, if someone wants to work with you considering <laughs> Bittered Sling or Empress or the DI or just wants to hang out and throw a karaoke party or wants to invite you to their karaoke party to show up their friends... How do they reach you? How do we how do we find Chantel? Easiest way is definitely Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can kind of check out what I'm doing there as well. What's your Instagram handle? Instagram is at Shanti, C-H-A-N-T-I, which is my nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gabino, G-A-B-I-N-O, at Shanti Gabino. Otherwise, you know, if you want to hang out with me in Empress, uh, just email me, Chantel at Empress.com. Cool. EmpressGin.com, yeah. Great. Thank you again so much. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Woo. Thanks again, Chantel, for taking the time to chat. This episode was recorded at The Workaround in Toronto. If you're looking for a co-working space that also provides childcare, The Workaround has you covered. If you have any constructive ideas about how to make this podcast better or just want to say hi, you can hit me at Bartender Atlas on all social media. 